Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition and intellectual life more broadly. On this episode, I speak to Heather McDonald. Heather is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, an editor of City Journal, and a New York Times best-selling author, most recently of her book, The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather and I talked about the value of a university education, what she thinks the role of university and society should be, and why she worries that today's students are not getting the same value from their education as she did. Thank you very much for making the time to speak to me, Heather. Why don't we get started by talking about your visits to college campuses. You're coming to ASU in February for the conference, and you've visited many college campuses over the years, sometimes to significant controversy. I thought maybe you might tell us a little bit about that. Well, yes, I have been blockaded. I've been sort of ambushed to try and make sure that nobody can attend the talks I've been walked out on. When I've been addressing either the topic of whether the Black Lives Matter narrative that we're living through an epidemic of racially biased police shootings of black men, or the topic of whether college students are oppressed today on college campuses. So at Claremont McKenna, there was a blockade of about 300 students around the auditorium where I was supposed to speak. When was that, uh, Heather? Was that recently or a few years ago? No, that was a few years ago. I believe it was in 2016 or 2017 after the release of my book, The War on Cops. And this was during the iteration of what I had termed the Ferguson effect, following the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, that was the first iteration of the Black Lives Matter protests. And then after that, I was talking on the topic of my book, The Diversity Delusion, at various colleges like Holy Cross and and Bucknell, and arguing that there are few human beings in history who are more privileged today than a college student because any college student of any chosen identity has at his fingertips the thing that Faust sold his soul for, which is knowledge. And there's nothing that will get a college student more upset today than being told that he is not oppressed, that he is, in fact, privileged. Did you feel privileged when you were a college student or oppressed? Absolutely. Absolutely. I reveled in my access to one of the great library collections. I quaked in fear that I was not adequate to the literature that I was reading, and I routinely fell in love with my professors because they were the source of knowledge and I find knowledge and eros to be very closely intertwined. So yes, I think I've felt very grateful and I feel even more grateful now in retrospect. The thing that I'm most grateful for is that I was in college in the 1970s and although I was intellectually weak and became 
a uncritical acolyte of the literary theory of deconstruction and came to believe was a based on a set of fictions about language. Nevertheless, deconstruction was a Mandarin science and it was the 70s was before identity politics hit. And so I was able to read the greatest works of literature without anyone, including my deconstructive professors like Paul Deman or Jacques Derrida, thinking to complain that I was reading dead white males. So that was a moment of relative prelapsarian innocence before the identity politics obsession and neuroses hit in the 1980s. So in retrospect, I'm particularly grateful that I was not poisoned by the resentment of the identity politics that would subsequently arrive in the 1980s. You are obviously following developments on college campuses very closely. They are a major theme in your recent book, The Diversity Delusion. Do you detect a rapid change that's happened over the last few years relating to the politics of the university, the politics of students, the sorts of uh, attempts to stop people speaking at campuses that you've experienced? Or is this something that's kind of gradually evolved over many decades? I think it's gradually evolved. I take issue with enormous respect with the Jonathan Haidt theory that this all happened in 2015, I see it as very much cumulative. We had already in the 1990s such absurd concepts as speech being harmful, students being hurt by hearing ideas that they don't like or disagree with. You had already efforts to shut down speakers. And really most cataclysmically for the proper functioning of a university, you had the rise of, as I say, this narrow idea that students should look to see themselves reflected in texts and should be hostile to, or at the very least wary of authors that don't fit their own identity profile. That, that's been in the works for quite some time. Do you think that the attempts to prevent you from speaking on certain college campuses have been about you as a person and perhaps about the many arguments you've put out there about different issues over the years? Or do you think they're about the specific arguments themselves? I guess what I'm asking is this kind of a symbolic protest or is it really a resistance to the arguments that you wanted to make in each specific case? Well, given the inability of students to think about ideas in the abstract, to be able to evaluate neutral principles when it comes to government, things like free speech and and censorship, I guess I would say that they are certainly not separating ideas in the person. I don't take it particularly personally. Clearly, I present, I mean, I don't want to take particular credit for any set of arguments. What I am trying to do is providing alternate facts to certain claims, whether it's with regards to policing and racial justice, or with regards to whether universities today should be characterized by systemic racism, a claim that is utterly preposterous. I would love 
anybody making such a claim, including college presidents like Yale's Peter Salovey or, or Princeton's Ice Gruber, to point to a single faculty member who has discriminated against underrepresented minorities. I do not believe it is happening. I try to present alternative facts, and those facts are simply not welcome. And the, the weapon that students use is this ludicrous claim of being harmed. And I think faculty members that sit by silently and allow students to employ this melodramatic discourse without saying, for God's sakes, grow up, recognize the benefits, the incredible resources that are at your fingertips, and yes, your privilege are doing a disservice to what should be a very important institution for the transmission of our civilization, which is the university. Is there space for a dialogue here? Have you ever had an actual debate about your views about policing, about the university with students or with faculty when you visit a campus? Or is it always this kind of much more antagonistic question of whether you should be allowed to present your views at all? There's been degrees of students sticking their fingers in their ears and saying, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear. I mean, I have been in Federalist Society meetings, say, at the Yale Law School, pre-George Floyd, I was talking again about police. And the students, there wasn't a walkout, there wasn't a temper tantrum. And so there were questions that were, I would say, without any factual basis. I mean, students were desperately trying to come up with any possible way of rebutting what are the gold standard facts about crime disparities among different racial groups. So there's been back and forths on occasion and questions. So it's not been uniformly an attempt to simply silence me. If you yourself were a college professor, how would you deal with uh, Heather McDonald? Would you invite her to class? Would you ask the class to debate with her, what what would you do if you knew that these were controversial views that not all your students agreed with? How would you invite Heather McDonald to campus? Well, to be perfectly honest, I would not invite Heather McDonald to campus because, <laughs> because I think that college should not be about current events. So I actually disagree with the conservative bromides that are a reaction to the increasing hysteria and totalitarianism of students where conservatives are going around saying that the very essence of college is debate, political back and forth and points of view. I think there's time enough after you graduate to discuss the current discourse about policing or other matters of the moment. I am extremely traditional and think that four years is sadly, woefully inadequate to cram a body of knowledge into students' empty noggins regarding history, our founding principles, the glories of literature, the glories of art, the glories of music, and for a whole body of that knowledge, the idea of debate 
is simply irrelevant. Students do not know enough to debate the causes of the spread of civilization around the Mediterranean, you know, in early history. One doesn't debate German verb endings and syntax. You don't debate the periodic table. I think that the sort of conservative strategy about trying to push back against the illiberalism and closed-mindedness of students by bringing in outside speakers such as myself to debate current affairs, I regard kind of as a sideshow. The important work of universities is in the classroom and the important work of universities falls on the shoulders of professors who should feel a sense of utter urgency about their role, as Michael Oakeshott would say, which is to transfer an inheritance from one generation to the other. That's an extremely interesting point of view. And as a former German literature major myself, I can kind of relate to a lot of what you're saying, a lot of what you learn at university. If, you, for example, a literature student in foreign language is just kind of facts. I mean, it uh, took me a long time to be able to learn German well enough to read Faust, a book that you mentioned earlier. And yet there is this kind of deep concern, I think, on the right for sure, but on the left as well about the quality of political discourse out there in the world and people naturally seem to to look to the universities you don't think that there is a role for nurturing if not the exact political debate of the day then perhaps the sorts of skills that allow students to engage in those debates as citizens once they graduate yes and first of all let me just say i envy you your german literature degree. <laughs> I adore German. I haven't heard that for a long time. Oh, you're kidding me. I mean, really? <laughs> that Well, then that's a, that is itself a tragedy for you mm. to be able to have been given the luxury of immersion in German literature. I struggled with Der Tod in Venedig, uh, Thomas uh-huh. Hunt's Death in Venice, you know, very difficult language. But, you know, that's a, a literary tradition that is one of the most important in the world. And not to know that is to be the poor. And I I wish that more professors would be out there every start of every school year saying, here is beauty, here is richness, here is insight into the human condition that you will not get in the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times or CNN or Fox News and you have four precious years to absorb it. And instead, faculty are virtually tongue-tied about this legacy. So I applaud your choice of major. As far as whether there's a role for learning civil discourse and debate, of, of course there is, and I'm you know, taking somewhat an extreme version position to counter what I view as too extreme a, a position on the other side, which leaves out the core function of college, which is knowledge transmission rather than debate club. So yes, there is. And and again, like, as I say, I was a pretty monomaniacally involved student, whereas I know that there were my peers that were involved in political union debates and honing their teeth or whatever the proper metaphor is 
on debate and parliamentary skills, and that's very important. So yes, that is a part of, of college up to a point, but I would say that you don't need to make that a separate focus necessarily. So I'm not opposed to people being able to debate, but I just think that we don't talk enough about knowledge. I actually agree with you to a large extent on your point about some of these basic topics or material not being covered at university the same way they were. I mean, the university where I went as an undergraduate back home in New Zealand, I think the German major that I studied in has either been shut down or pretty much shut down. And But that was a response to the demand of the students, right? Students today they're not happy to sit in a room and read fast like I guess I kind of was. I was just nerdy enough to at least want to try and do that. But most students come to university today wanting to get a degree that will help them get a job. And so sitting in a dusty library reading books from two, three hundred years ago, I think for them it's difficult to see how it helps them in that, in that task. That is true. And I have to say that I, you know, I must be very honest and not take credit for my own focus. When I was an undergraduate, I wasn't thinking about jobs. I, well, I aspired to be an academic. I assumed that I would get a PhD in comparative literature and would have done so except for my difficult realization that the theory that I had devoted so much time to an undergraduate years, which was deconstruction, was really a very bizarre and uh, useless way of thinking about language that had nothing to do with actual the way language works, as I learned when I studied linguistics in England. So I didn't feel that economic pressure. But I would also say that the fact that students, as you put it, don't want to sit in a hall reading dusty books is partly a failure of their professors and their teachers to not make the case for why it is absolutely urgent that they read these books. The faculty are tongue-tied. For God's sakes, you guys, and I'm, I'm not making, you know, singling you out particularly, but as a group, you guys are absolutely silent about the value of this tradition. I don't understand it. You devoted your lives to it, those of you who were in the humanities, you should know its value. And yet, as students are engaged in their hyena performative demonstrations of their alleged oppression, I mean, there were students at Yale who were protesting against the required class for English majors at Yale, which I was privileged to take which was a survey starting with Chaucer through Edmund Spencer's Fairy Queen, Milton, Alexander Pope, the Romantics, Wordsworth, Coleridge, Shelley, Keats, Virginia Woolf ended with, in my case, Wallace Stevens. Students wrote a petition saying that it was injurious to their mental health to have to sit around a table reading these dead white male authors, which is just an appalling ignorant, close-minded position, and ludicrous. I mean, it should be laughed out of the room. Yale capitulated and got rid of that as a requirement and provided all sorts of anti-colonial third world 
literature alternatives to this, that the faculty should be the ones defending this tradition and instead they are cowards, they've got their head buried in the sand, they're scared of their own students. Of course, this is a long-standing tradition. You mentioned rightly the, the 1960s as the start of all this, and we saw again, mostly the faculty caved in when the, the black radicals took over administration halls with machine guns and whatnot and, and allowed this to happen. So it would seem that on average faculty are not particularly courageous. I'm not sure that they're any worse than any other profession because as I've recently been writing about in, in the medical profession, uh, you have doctors that are also silent as the ridiculous narrative that medicine is systemically racist is perpetrated in order to tear down meritocratic standards. They're largely silent. So very few people are willing to stand up to the mob, it would seem, whether they're inside academia. And in the case of medicine, many of them are inside academia as well. But even those outside, uh, few people are willing to be accused today of racism. I do wonder sometimes whether the contemporary students' uh, political concerns and their critiques of the university are driven by economic precarity, right? I mean, like I said, most students come to the university these days, they see it as an investment, they are very attuned to the cost of the degree, to whether it's going to get them a job that's going to justify those costs. And I think, to some degree, at least, this is driven by the consequences of the Great Recession and the relatively difficult job market that's kind of ensued since then. And do you agree with that? Would you say that part of the sort of malaise of the university, the lack of students having the relaxed attitude to read these sort of classic works is to some degree driven by the fact that they are perhaps somewhat fearful or worried about a very difficult job market once they graduate? Well, possibly, but I would also say that this is a self, a largely self-created problem on the part of universities that have allowed their bureaucracy to just explode. And I know that you faculty members are aware of this and occasionally sotto voce grumble about the fact that in you're at least matched one-to-one -one with bureaucrats and sometimes overmatched by bureaucrats, but colleges feed at the federal trough, they then take loan money that you have working class Americans coughing up the tuition dollars to go into these bloated sinecures, bureaucratic sinecures that are heavily populated by the ridiculously unnecessary diversity bureaucracy, but then there's just the entire student services bureaucracy, which is equally ridiculous. The universities allow their tuitions to get higher and higher, and you get this vicious cycle where students then say, oh, well, because of that, we can only, uh, you know, study marketing majors, which are phony majors. There's no intellectual content there. But I also blame conservatives. I was disappointed when the Trump education secretary, Betsy DeVos, went one step further with the existing monetization of, of a college degree and said, well, we're, we're not just going to look at rate different universities for what their value added is as far as salary if you go there. We're going to rank different majors to see how much you get 
as a boost to your earning potential. And again, maybe I'm just a Mandarin, you know, privileged person, but I know that people have tried to make the argument that, well, if in fact, if you're a classics major and you are spending your time grappling with the terrors of Aeschylus's Oresteia and what that trilogy says about the human passion for revenge and the triumph of justice and the furies that drive all of us. And people will try to say, well, that actually will land you that job at Goldman Sachs Consulting or or Bain Consulting. In my ideal world, you would be able to say it's an end in itself. You will have experienced a part of human history and a way of expressing what it is to be human that you will not get anywhere else. So I would like the argument to be made that it's an end in itself as opposed to making the economic justification argument. But it may be that that is a luxury that only the elite can afford. And to be perfectly honest, I would be almost willing, well, first of all, far too many people are going to college. Probably you could cut the amount of people going to college by maybe 90%. When everybody goes to college, which is the goal, obviously, of democratic policy, that everybody should go to college, it stops meaning anything. College should be a very demanding intellectual activity, and not everybody wants that, needs it, or frankly, is capable of it. And Europe is more willing to have a stratified education system and give people, there is nothing to be ashamed of in vocational training, in being able to work with your hands, figure out how things work, figure out machines, becoming a master craftsman, a master toolman. That is as noble a calling as being a marketing major for God's sakes. And yet Democrats keep pushing this idea that everybody should get some kind of white collar degree. There's, I think that's a mistake. So it wouldn't bother me if you had an elite that was reading Andrew Marvell and Thomas Wyatt because there is a great chain of expression that needs to be maintained between generations. And when we stop reading these books, they die. We have to keep them alive and we keep them alive by reading them. And it is on us if we allow them to be buried in ignorance. We do not deserve these works by and large. We do not have most of us the capacity to possibly recreate them. They have attained a level of language use that is beyond practically all of our capacities, and we should simply be down on our knees in gratitude for them and make sure that next generations understand how lucky they are to have received this inheritance. You know, from what I read, university enrollments are declining in absolute numbers, which is putting some colleges actually in a really difficult situation, but they, I believe, are also declining even on a per capita basis. So it is interestingly 
perhaps moving American society and perhaps other developed countries too are moving at least somewhat a little closer to your to your ideal. I would hope so. Absolutely. I would definitely hope so. This has been a bubble, inflated bubble, driven by insane policies of government subsidy for the bureaucracy that is a huge regressive tax on people that don't necessarily have a college degree to send people off to degrees that are not scholarly. So I, I would hope that there is a major contraction. And it is tragic, as you say, your New Zealand college has shut down its German degree. This is happening everywhere. They're shutting mm-hmm. down language For sure. degrees. They're shutting down music. They're shutting down classics. Those should be the last on the chopping block. Here's what you cut. The dean of student engagement. You certainly cut the dean of equity, diversity, and inclusion because there is no equity problem on college campuses. There has never been an institution more welcoming to history's traditionally oppressed and marginalized groups than a college campus. This is a lie that we need this bureaucracy to protect students against discrimination. There is not a single selective college in the United States that is not practicing massive racial preferences in order to engineer diversity, far from discriminating against so-called underrepresented minorities. Every single college is discriminating in their favor, whether it's in terms of college admissions, hiring, or promotions. So let's get rid of this nonsense and try to lower tuition and preserve the reason for being of colleges, which is the transmission of our inheritance. Do you think there's a need for new universities? Have you ever engaged with this idea that there could be simply new universities established? Maybe even if some of these other universities are going broke because the numbers are declined, they could even simply take over the campuses of defunct institutions. Well, that is happening. Obviously, there's a huge lot of attention some of it angry that's being brought to bear at the University of Austin. Ralston College gets less attention, but they are trying to to also create a, in the case of Ralston College, much more humanities-based. I don't see a whole lot of attention to the humanities in the University of Austin materials. It's more sort of going for the investor capital of where we can teach people to think and all of that. The challenge, obviously, is the status obsession of parents You know, right now, the elite colleges are a finite commodity, and they continue to be able to confer bragging rights on parents and networking on students. So if a new university can crack that conundrum and figure out a way to match the prestige points of going to the legacy institutions, sure, if you can do it, that would be great. I know that the University of Austin has said we are going to be lean and mean. I think they're saying they'll, their tuition will be about half the national average, 30000 rather than 60000 That's a start. And there's no need to replicate the entire student services bureaucracy. So the more the merrier, obviously. And they're getting a lot of faculty applicants who want to ditch their current institutional environments that are so hostile to free speech. So that's good. And it would be also good if there's a 
a target that would allow, above all, straight white males to feel like they can dare pursue graduate training and actually have any hope of getting hired. Because right now, if you're a straight white male with a PhD in anything remotely like a traditional field of study, which is fairly unusual, you are the absolute last that will be looked at in hiring because you're simply not intersectional. And it would be nice if there would be a place where people who actually do love learning can think about as a possibility of landing if they go through with a, with a study of, of a graduate program. I'm wondering whether, given that you wanted to pursue an academic career, whether you regret or you sometimes wonder whether you would have enjoyed a life as a university professor, even if you weren't postmodernist, deconstructionist, but as a professor of English literature. No, I am so grateful every day in the current environment that I'm not there. I cannot imagine being in a present university and being under the thumb, not just of students, but of the administration, facing the mob. I mean, I, I will say that what's just the most stunning experience as that I've had of speaking on college campuses is seeing the mob in action and seeing this like Salem witch trial hysteria among students. You can't believe it unless you've actually witnessed it. Again, these are the most privileged human beings. They have nothing to complain about, and yet they are worked up in a state of frenzied neuroses of self-pity. It's really absolutely stunning. So I am very grateful that I didn't go forward. Now, had universities not gone down this path and they had remained true to their original mission, leaving aside the rise of high theory and deconstruction, I still think that it's the greatest calling one can possibly have. I would have loved to have been able to devote my days to study and reading and being in the library. So what would your advice be for young people who are interested in learning, who are intellectual? The university seems to me is still the natural place for them to go. And although they might have to navigate a slightly more complex environment than in your day and perhaps choose their classes a little more carefully, they can still have a similar experience, I think, to some degree to what you had. But what would your advice be to be those students probably different from from what I just uh, outlined? I would say I would hope that you have developed the capacity to read, that you are interested in language, that you have a soul that is open to beauty and experience other than your own. And if you have a passion for it, you should pursue it. And I don't know the extent to which one can find still classes that teach our civilizational inheritance if they exist. And it is tragic that one might have to filter out the gloss, the narcissistic gloss of oppression and resentment that the faculty member may try to put on the works. But I would definitely recommend if, if you have an interest for this to throw yourself into it 100%. 
you will not regret it. I mean, it just these works are too great. You will never experience them. It's very hard to study outside of college. I wrote in the Diversity Delusion about the great courses, you know, these recorded lectures that are available uh -huh. commercially. But it's not quite the same. And so I would say if you have a bent towards the humanities, by all means pursue it and things will work out. Is that maybe also why you still write about the university and why you're obviously so passionate about the university is because you don't really see an alternative? What do you mean I don't see an alternative? An alternative for young people who are intellectually inclined to go to learn, that they, they have to go to university essentially. Yes. Yeah, I'm just thinking, I mean, I, I guess one could, maybe there could be online resources of the great books. You know, Edie Hirsch back in the 90s was writing about cultural literacy and he used to he came up with lists of things that anybody who wanted to be considered literate in world civilization should know perhaps one could be an autodidact and follow that and there have obviously been autodidacts over the years you know now mill was taught by his father and did do studies but but there are people who can follow that, but I would say few students, including myself, had any clue. And, and the other thing I would also say is none of us know enough at this point to read. I mean, our, our K through 12 education is so thin. It was ludicrous for me to try to read Milton's Paradise Lost as a, as a freshman. I didn't possibly know enough history, English revolution history. I didn't know enough biblical history to really have any sense of what's going on in that book. And I certainly was felled initially by Miltonic syntax, but nevertheless, I, I persevered and lost myself in the richness of his writing and descriptions of paradise. So whether one could do it on one's own, I don't know. Ideally, I think though, there's nothing more charismatic than a professor who has absorbed a tradition, is enthusiastic about it, and wants to share his love. I've written about Vincent Scully, a great art historian at Yale. I also took Dante with John Frachero when I was there, who was another extraordinary medievalist, but was well-versed in contemporary theory, which at the time was important to me. At, that, at this point, it would be less so. These were all just seminal figures in my intellectual life. And, and there is a, a particular kind of charisma of a professor who loves his material and wants to pass it on. And that's hard to replicate on one's own. Well, on that note, I think we'd better draw the conversation to a conclusion, Heather, because we are running out of time. But thank you very much. I do have one concluding question for you, which is, I ask of all of our guests, which is, what would be a podcast or a book or a film or anything really that you would recommend to our listeners, perhaps especially students, given the conversation, on the topic of civil discourse and debate? Well, on civil discourse and debate, I think that J.S. Mill's just discussion of, of the value of free speech pretty much lays it out the epistemological humility that one needs to have that you, none of us can be certain that we have the truth and so we need the marketplace of ideas to work these things out. It doesn't really get much better than that. I would say 
Frederick Douglass has also written about or gave a speech about the value of free speech and if, if allowed to reign in Boston and, and the rest of the country in the 19th century, it would have taken down slavery on its own. So those, I think, are, are pretty core texts. That's great. Heather MacDonald, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.